Well, I want to say hi to everybody, all of our campuses, folks joining us online, uh, everybody here in this room. I have been pumped up to do this message all weekend long, but I am more excited for this service than I have been for any service so far. Just to let you know. Um, we're going to talk today about a terribly important subject. What is it that causes disruption in community? What, what makes for relational breakdown? We all suffer for this. And then what's the answer? What's the solution for this? It's been a problem for a long time. In his farewell address, George Washington, when he voluntarily relinquished powers, relatively unprecedented at that time, he pleaded with our nation not to become divided, not to get separated and, and uh, get factional. He talked about a, the danger of a partisan spirit. This is what he said. A partisan spirit always serves to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasional riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. What do you think George would say if he could see us today? These amazingly prescient words... Progressive versus populist, red state, blue state, left versus right, global versus nationalist. I have a good idea. Wouldn't it be great if we could just make everybody who disagrees with us politically move away? No. The correct answer is no. That is not the solution. Maybe it's just too hard for a country. Maybe the real place to build true relational harmony, community, and love is in the workplace where you can use the mission of the company and its culture and paychecks as leverage and so, except you might know the number one complaint in the workplace is people, broken relationships, office politics, silos, turf wars, favoritism, incompetent coworkers, bad bosses. Maybe that's the wrong place. Maybe the pressure of having to make money is too great. Maybe the only truly stress-free, genuinely peace-filled community you can expect is with your relatives and your family and your in-laws. <laughs> the placid tasks of household chores and division of labor and getting everything done and conflict management and the condemnation engineering that so often leads to. Where can you find a place where everybody just gets along. There's no factions. There's no divisions. There's no complaints. There's no grumbling. There's no small-mindedness. There's no petty quarrels. There's no egos battling. Thank God for the church. <laughs> Although no church I've ever been a part of. Because I bring all those problems with me. This... This topic is huge for everybody and our nation and our world. We've been studying this quite remarkable book. It's called 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that Paul wrote a couple thousand years ago to a church in Corinth. And we've seen how much Corinth was like where we live. If you haven't checked it out yet, I invite you to go online and listen to the first two messages in this series. Corinth, a lot like us. It was a startup culture rebuilt by Rome, generating unprecedented wealth, uh, uh, enormously competitive, lots of people trying to climb the ladder, status-obsessed and so. And, and Paul brings to it this message of Jesus, all of the wisdom that Jesus brought to earth. We studied that a lot last year in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And now, for Paul, kind of gathered together, kind of summed up, expressed somehow in the cross of Jesus, and then the resurrection. So he's writing to this new church. He helped start in this amazing place called Corinth. Uh, He's far away in a town called Ephesus, most likely, when he writes it. And in these words, he lays out the real reason why he's writing to Corinth, because, of course, he's got an issue he's trying to address. And the reason is they're actually having a relational meltdown. Factions, divisions, quarrels, and so. Here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. He's using family language now. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, I want you to imagine that you're in Corinth when this letter is being read. Paul started the church there. He's kind of taking you to the woodshed as a church. The church just getting started, and already it's splintering into factions and divisions. And it's very interesting how Paul finds this out. The Corinthians have already written him a letter previously. We know this because later on in 1 Corinthians, he writes, Now for the matters you wrote about... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. They've already written Paul, but they don't write to him about this problem that they can't get along with each other because they're all behaving like little kids. They want to know about marriage and sex, always a popular topic in churches. So how does Paul know that they're having relational problems? So interesting. Some people, servants, slaves, relatives, whatever, from Chloe's household have informed Paul. Now, I'll say a word about Chloe. Kind of an interesting character. We don't know a whole lot about her. Um, She's a woman. She's the head of her own household, something of a rarity in the ancient world. She's wealthy. She's rich. That's rare in the church. She is crazy about Jesus. She has put her property, her household, her wealth at the disposal of his church. She's thought to be from Ephesus, so she may be one of those who made her money trading from Asia, because Ephesus is in the continent of Asia, through Corinth. In other words, she is a crazy rich Asian. Kind of cool that there's one of those in the New Testament. Now remember, most people in the ancient world were illiterate, so Paul's letter wouldn't be read by each person. It would have been read out loud to the church. They're all gathered together just like this. And And then these words come from Paul. Some people from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. And at this point, everybody that's not from Chloe's house is looking at the people that are from Chloe's house. Like, are you kidding me? How could you say that? Why would you tell Paul? Now we're going to get criticized in the Bible. People will be saying bad things about us for thousands of years because you were little tattletales to the Apostle Paul. Say a word about this. Thank God somebody from Chloe's house said something. Do you realize this letter is a classic, it is a treasure for humanity for a couple of thousand years. It might not have gotten written if somebody from Chloe's house hadn't said, hey, Paul, we're having problems here. We can't solve them. Now, maybe the people from Chloe's house should have gone directly to the people that were causing problems initially. Maybe they tried going there and that did no good at all. All I know is, all I know is relational problems always occur and they never get cleaned up unless somebody has the courage to take the heat for naming them. 
And the way that it works is it's always messy. Trying to deal with relational conflict is always messy. And very often what people do is instead of acknowledging and dealing with the relational, relational problems, they focus on the process. Oh, you didn't say it the right way. You didn't go to the right... Process is almost never perfect. The real question is, am I going to respond with an open heart when somebody names the problems? So... You got anybody from Chloe's house in your life? When somebody from Chloe's house speaks the truth about me, do I listen? Am I open-hearted, or do I get defensive and stubborn about this? Well, that's what was going on in Corinth. Somebody's Paul writes this letter. Really interesting moment when it gets read. Some people from Chloe's house have informed me. Really interesting dynamic going on in the church at this moment. And then he describes how the relational breakdown is happening. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. And he comes back to this a little later. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? That is, operating apart from God's power and God's direction. People are dividing the church, for crying out loud, over which teacher they like best. Paul started the church, and then sometime later, Apollos comes along, and he's apparently a great, riveting speaker. He's described in the book of Acts by a word that means educated or eloquent or possibly both. Paul, maybe not so much. You know, we don't know what Paul spoke like. Very interesting. In his second letter to Corinth, Paul writes, For some say his, Paul's, letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. How do you think Paul feels when he hears that? Paul may have been a boring speaker. One time, we read this in Acts. Paul was speaking in an upper room. There's people gathered together. A kid named Eutychus is sitting on a windowsill listening. And the text says, as Paul goes on and on, Eutychus actually falls asleep. That's always a depressing thing to have happen when you're talking. And Eutychus falls out the window and lands on the ground several stories below and died. Paul, your talks aren't killing it. They're killing people. <laughs> and Paul, you can read about this in Acts. He goes downstairs, picks this dead guy up in his arms and brings him back to life. So Paul does have that going for him, which is kind of handy. Every speaker, every pastor wrestles with this. How do I compare to other people? Many years ago, a young pastor who for very good reasons shall remain nameless is leaving his first church. A woman is saying goodbye, and she's in tears because he is leaving, and this feeds his ego. And so he says to her, don't be sad. I'm sure the next pastor will be even better. And she says, that's what everybody says, but they keep getting worse. <laughs> Some people... You know, this comparison thing goes on, and some people say, I prefer Peter. Maybe they can relate to Peter more. Some people say, hey, I follow Jesus. And, of course, that's the churchy thing to say, and it's the right answer. But you can give the right answer with the wrong heart and do more damage than you would if you were wrong. The surface problem is factions and divisions, but there's a deeper problem, and, and this gets to you and to me and why there are factions in this world and how they get healed. So... I want to take a little look beneath the surface at Corinth. Remember, the gospel, Jesus, the way of the cross are brand new for Corinth. But comparing and wanting to climb a ladder and wanting to have 
status and wanting to be in the best group and be on the inside and have other, that's not new to Corinth. It's not new to us. And Paul's actually battling a mindset and a cultural practice that involved speakers coming to Corinth uh, that will help us understand what's going on here. In ancient Greece, uh, rhetoric, the ability to command language in order to gain a hearing was highly valued. Uh, it was in forensic ways, in legal settings, and then in politics, and then eventually in entertainment. And by the time the Roman Empire arose, which is what was in power in Paul's day, the ability to use language had largely morphed into uh, a kind of traveling celebrity sages, speakers, that were known as sophists. Um, that comes from Sophia, the Greek word for wisdom. Our name Sophia comes from that. But now when Paul uses the term wisdom, you have to put scare quotes around it because he talks about the wisdom, quote-unquote, or the eloquence, quote-unquote, that in Corinth, in Corinth, these sages, these sophists would use to gain status for themselves. By Paul's day, a sophist was like uh, a performance virtuoso with dazzling verbal skills who could please an audience and win applause. And they would enter into competition with each other. Corinth had a 14,000-seat theater, so it was a natural mecca for uh, kind of entertainment in all of Greece, kind of like American Idol in Corinth. And these guys were kind of combination hip-hop artists, pundits, rock stars, and they could dazzle people with their verbal skills. They could charm you. They could alarm you. They could make a crowd jump to its feet and cheer them on. They were rock stars, and they mastered the art of self-promotion. They built their brand. They extended their platform in order to win glory, wealth, fame, honor. Eloquence and verbal skills were a means towards their status. And we know about lots of them from history. There was a sophist named Favorinius who was so successful, his oration actually got written down and they built a statue to honor him. Nobody's building a statue to honor Paul. When the historian Plutarch went to Rome, he asked if he could dine with a quite wealthy sophist named Herodes Atticus. No members of the Roman elite were asking, could we dine with the Apostle Paul? And another guy, Philostratus, wrote that groupies of another sophist got so mad at insults from a rival of his, they had their slaves beat that rival sophist to death. That's how fierce the rivalry was. Nobody's fighting for the Apostle Paul. Another sophist named Licinius actually got paid 400 silver drachmas. That's more than a year's pay for a Roman soldier for one single performance. That's how fabulous he was. Nobody's paying Paul 400 silver drachmas. As a matter of fact, Paul's working like a slave making tents. See, the way that the game worked was these rock stars, these sophists, used their artistry to get rich. There would be real wealthy people in Corinth who would become their patrons, who would, who would sponsor these guys. And then these sophists would flatter their patrons and say whatever their patrons wanted to hear. And they would get wealth and have leisure and be looked up to, and that's where status was. And Paul, precisely because of those problems, that's part of why he will not do that. He actually earns his own money making tents like a slave, which is an insult to these wealthy people that want to sponsor him. But he does that so that he can be free to speak the gospel with no strings attached and to challenge people that have resources around care for the poor and so on. The sophist 
used their artistry to get rich. They competed to see who would get the most followers. They called them disciples. So when some Corinthians start this new thing called the church, and this man named Paul comes along to speak to them, and he's quite a remarkable, got quite a remarkable message, they think, oh, I know what this is. I know how this deal works. He's one of them. And Paul has to say, no, you don't. You have no idea. You have no idea. And so he comes and speaks, and he has this remarkable message, but he does these odd things. He doesn't have a patron. He doesn't get him money. He works like a slave, making tents. He says, Apollos is not my rival. I'm not in competition with him. He's my partner. He's my brother. Everybody that is helped by him is a win for me. To treat the cross, to treat the church as a vehicle for self-promotion or reputation or self-seeking or the gratification of the ego of anybody who does what I do or somebody else in a church leadership role does is to turn the cross upside down and empty the church of everything that it's supposed to offer. So, by the way, can we say that in this church it is Jesus and the cross that matter above all else? Can we say in this church we will not have disunity over stupid stuff? We will not have disunity over preference for different preachers, for crying out loud, or preference for different worship leaders, for crying out loud, or preference for different styles of music, for crying out loud, or preferences for different instruments, or different styles of clothing, or the use or non-use of different kinds of technology. We will not have disunity over any individual's pet ideas or pet program or partisan party politics or furniture or formal versus informal or planned versus spontaneous or young versus old. Whether you are in the hip category or the hip replacement category, we will find our unity in the person of Jesus and the way of the cross. Can we just agree on that as a church? It is so ironic. Jesus came as the Messiah, but the problem was everybody thought, oh, I know what that is. That's power. That's success. That's the dazzling ability to control. And Jesus had to teach everybody, no, it's the way of humbling, self-sacrificing love, and eventually it killed him on a cross. And then Paul comes to Corinth as an apostle, and everybody says, oh, I know what that's all about. That's all about power and success and dazzling strength and the ability to gain control. And Paul has to figure out how to re-educate them all in the way of humble, self-sacrificing, servant, low-status love, and it killed him. We're told by church history also on a cross. See, at Corinth, but this is just human nature. This is us. They could turn anything, even good things, into a source of division because all this ego stuff gets involved. Paul goes on, is Christ divided? This is why the church, the unity of the church, the oneness that just starts with our relationships and our care for each other and living as servants, that is the signature of the church, is Christ divided? We are the body of Christ. We cannot tolerate divisions. Was Paul crucified for you? No, Jesus was. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you. Then he goes on this little riff of baptism, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. Now, why does he get into this stuff? Well, in Corinth, followers of these celebrity rock star sages would claim a special relationship with their guy, with their leader, 
And they would want to have status through that. He's my special guy. So baptism was being turned into that in Corinth. Church people were starting to use who they got baptized by as a way of saying, I get some of his status because he's kind of my guy. I'm connected with him. Who did you get baptized by? It's amazing how for 2,000 years, churches and whole denominations have fought and split over baptism, for crying out loud. Some churches say that you have to only sprinkle the water. Sometimes say you have to just pour it on the forehead. Some say you have to immerse the whole body or it doesn't count. Quakers don't use water at all. Some say you can only baptize adults. Some say if you don't baptize infants and they die, they'll go to some place called limbo. Some say that you must baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some say no, you can only baptize in the name of Jesus. In some churches, they dunk you three separate times. Some churches have to have godparents. Some churches forbid godparents. Some churches call baptism a sacrament. Some churches say there is no such thing as a sacrament. Churches will fight over whether or not to count another church's baptism as a real baptism. I kid you not, in some independent Baptist churches, even if you were baptized by immersion as an adult in a Baptist church, it doesn't count unless it was an independent Baptist church. Now, Paul took baptism extremely seriously. It was a very costly move. It was a very courageous move. A lot of times when somebody would get baptized in that world, it meant they were cutting themselves off. They would be cut off from their family because religion was basically a tribal and family thing. And there could be tremendously high uh, financial costs, opportunity costs, relational costs. But it's stepping into a new way of life. It's identifying with Jesus. It's a very powerful moment. We're going to be celebrating baptisms as a church a little later this fall. And if you follow Jesus and you have never been baptized, I hope you take that step. That, that is something you will remember the rest of your life, and we will cheer you on. But what Paul is saying here, and the reason he has that little, I only baptized a couple of people, and, oh yeah, one more, can't even remember. The reason that he's got that odd little thing is, he is saying, see, I'm not baptizing to build my brand. This is not about extending Paul's platform. The main thing that happens in baptism, by the way, is I die. My ego dies. Don't you all know, Paul writes, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And this is what now points to the secret of community that our world so desperately needs to hear. To the only way that relationships actually can get healed. See, contrary to conventional wisdom, unity and harmony and community are not a product of being with people who are like us or who have been educated about us. We often think that what kills relationships are differences. And if we just had the same ideology, if we just all had the same politics, if we just all had the same identity, if we just all had the same culture, if we just had all had the same ethnicity, or if we could educate people about those differences, that would make everything okay. But you try a little thought experiment, get a whole group of people together that are all in the same political party, all have the same ideology, the same education, the same culture, same language, same ethnicity, even the same gender, and it will not usher in utopia. See, because the problem is not differences of opinion, but brokenness of the will. It is the stubborn, self-seeking, me-first ego. It is evil in me in you, to will the bad. 
And that is why what people need and what relationships need is to be brought to the cross. See, at the cross, I die to my need to get my own way, to the way that I sin and damage other people, people that I even want to love, and I come alive to God's love. Community always begins with self-giving love. Every family begins this way. A mom gives nine months of her life, of her body, to make a tiny little person. And God's family begins with self-giving love. God so loved the world he gave. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He would be lifted up on the cross. What a strange idea. What a strange idea. I'm going to heal this broken, sorry, bleeding world and its violence and its hatred. Not with a new educational movement, not with a new program, not by starting the perfect country with the perfect political system. I'm going I'm to die. I'm going to die on a cross and heal fractured humanity. What a strange idea. Who would think that up? And yet he was right. Whatever you think about God or the supernatural or faith, whatever you think, as a matter of historical fact, he died on a cross and that gave birth to a community. The likes of which not only had never been seen, nobody had ever thought of before. The ancient Romans, you know, they didn't even know what category to put the church in. Was it like a religion? Was it like a, sometimes they thought it was a burial guild. They didn't know what, because there'd never been anything Male and female, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free. 2,000 years later, we have Freedom Sunday. We pray, we work to try to bring liberation to people that are trafficked. Why? Because Jesus says every human being was made in the image of God and has dignity and worth. And he died on the cross for everybody, see, for 2,000 years. That has animated this movement. There's not a person for whom Jesus did not die. Who thinks up something like that? This is what Paul knows. This strange death that brings life. And that's why he writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize. And you understand there, he's, that means he didn't send me to build my own brand, to climb my own ladder. But to preach the gospel, the good news of the availability of life now with God. Not with, quote-unquote, wisdom, quote-unquote, eloquence in ways that will build me up, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. How in the world can a cross, a means of execution, have power? Because it is the plan, the symbol, the vessel, the vehicle, the expression of the suffering, self-giving love of God. How do I save my life? Lose it. How do I get ahead? Go last. How do I become great? Serve. How do I get rich? Give. How do I get even? Forgive. What a strange idea. So gang, so, 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 is where it gets personal. Now, whatever you do to harm relationships, whatever you do to hurt people, to harm people, to create divisions, to create enmity, wherever there's brokenness, bring it to the cross. 
Maybe I use people. Maybe I flatter people. Maybe I gossip. Maybe I'm selfish. Maybe I get impatient. Maybe I get really anger, angry. This is kind of funny. Last week, we all took a cross as a reminder. We want to be people of the cross. We want to lay every burden down at the foot of the cross. We want to lay our brokenness down and receive new life at the cross. And so many people took crosses at all of our services. Some even took them for friends. More than we anticipated, we ran out of crosses. And after this service, the last service, we did not have crosses. And some came up to me in the parking lot after this service when I was by my car and said, I can't believe this church wasn't organized enough to have enough crosses. I didn't get my own cross. What a ripoff. <laughs> so this week we got more crosses. We have, we have like a cross palooza. We have lots of crosses. And if that person was you, I want you to get your very own cross and nail your anger to it. <laughs> Bring Bring all of your relationships to the cross. Bring your relationships to the, uh, at work to the cross. Bring the people that you want to love who've disappointed you, crushed you. I've had conversations about that this weekend with folks. I'm a parent and I see my child going down this road and it's killing me. Bring it to the cross. I've been through a divorce and it's killing me. I've been betrayed and it's killing me. I'm guilty. Bring your family to the cross. In the Corinth in which we live, it's possible even for a good thing like a family to become an idol. And when it becomes an idol, then it will enslave you. And the pressure that we put on people around here to make the idol of their family look perfect is killing people. This is written by a... Uh, uh, woman, an author, Confessions of Domestic Failure, and she wrote a blog recently called How to Be a Mom in 2017. This is amazing. How to Be a Mom in 2017. This is what she wrote. Make sure your children's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, and social needs are met while being careful not to overstimulate, underestimate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian but also authoritative, nurturing but fostering of independence, gentle but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with a backyard and 1.5 siblings spaced at least two years apart for proper development. Also, don't forget the coconut oil. <laughs> then she added this, how to be a mom in literally every generation before ours. Feed them sometimes. Killing it is killing us. It's killing parents, killing moms, killing kids. By the way, if you're looking for some help on the parenting deal, because that is killing us, we're also in a parenting conference on October 6th. It'll be led by Reggie Joyner, Kristen Joy. They're incredibly effective communicators uh, uh, about family and parenting wisdom and so on. It'll serve you really well. So, we're going to be a people of the cross. Last week, you got one of these if you didn't get it this week, and, and, and this last week you, you did some unusual act of humility, just like a cross thing. So this week, do another cross thing. At home, if you don't usually do this, take the low place and sweep the floor, fix the meal, do the wash, run the errands, just under the cross. At work this week, let somebody else shine. Give them the credit. If there's relational heartbreak in your world, and there probably is, bring it to the cross right now. Be one of the people from Chloe's house. Name the brokenness. 
and confess whatever you need to do. The other person may handle it well. They may not. They are not under your control. You bring your stuff to the cross. Ask God for help. And when you mess up, and you will, remember the greatest power you have in your life is not the power of your IQ, high though it may be, or charm, great as it may be, or persistence, strong as it may be. The power, the only power that will heal this world is the power of the cross. Let's pray. Now I want to invite you as a son or dad, as a daughter or mom, as a brother or sister, as a husband or wife, wherever you need to, you just bring that relationship to the cross. Wherever there's pain, wherever there's a need for healing, wherever you've got regret, wherever you're scared to death about what's going to happen to somebody that you love, just bring it to the cross. Heavenly Father, we all acknowledge right now we are not in control of anybody. So we bring to you our ego, our sin, our self-righteousness, our superior attitudes, our failures, our disappointments, our hurts, we bring them to the cross of Jesus. Would you help us die to our lesser selves and lives and fears so that we might live? We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.